0: Justin, uh, obviously, I'm excited to have you on the show. Uh, there's been some chatter recently from Mark Cuban on Shark Tank saying that he's seen no success, he's seen no exits, he's seen nothing. You're one of the people in Shark Tank that has exited. I I actually talked to my buddy Sean Riley, who runs Dude Products, Dude Wipes, who's invested in by Cuban, and he's absolutely killing it. So I I can't I can't actually figure out where Cuban's coming from if that was like mis, misquoted or taken out of place. Um, but I'm bringing you on here to set the record because you are one of the, if not the first, one of the first uh, Shark Tank exits that we've seen. So welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. So we were on season one of Shark Tank. It's like two... Kevin
0: Harrington years.
1: This was, I, yeah, Kevin. And two, this was 2009, I believe.
0: Right.
1: And we were on season one. And we ended up doing a deal with Barbara Cochran. And she made us a deal that was $90,000 for 10% of the company, but it was a loan that we could pay back. And so when we got ready to go on the show, we had no idea what Shark Tank was. And we basically got a note from the producers who said, if you do a deal during your recording session, you're much more likely to get aired on national TV. So obviously it was like a wink, wink, type of a situation, which we ended up doing. Take the deal. Take, take yeah, whatever deal gets presented. Uh, And Barbara was amazing to work with. So uh, the truth is, is after the show, we got much better terms from normal, regular investors. So we never actually did the deal with Barbara. And there was an article that came out a few years ago where Barbara said that Note Hall was one of the biggest deals that she regrets not doing in real life. So that was a nice compliment. And I think that goes towards the, the essence of your question, which is, has there been a lot of success on Shark Tank? I, I generally think that Mark is wrong. I think it takes a long time to build a successful company. And you look at Scrub Daddy and you look at Ring and a handful of others that have been on Shark Tank. And I think that there's uh, been a handful of success, successful companies, including my first company called Note Hall.
0: I mean, look, like I feel like just having Ring and I remember that, I actually literally remember that episode, but having ring on the show, like, I think you can't say that the show isn't successful with just ring alone. It's one of the most pervasive products. I'm literally, I'm staring outside at a ring right now. Like it's, there's literally a ring everywhere. And like, you know, you mentioned a couple others, and there's a handful of others, like I said, dude wipes and, and others that have been successful. So I don't quite agree with that, but I, I do think it was a time. What would you say? It was 20, 2009, 2000, it's like 2015 before the real like startup founder, entrepreneur, you know, that whole kind of personality type started to come out and be popular. So like, it would make sense that, you know, the companies of the last six years, like there's not a lot of exits, it takes a while. So I I totally agree with you.
1: Well, what's interesting, Scott, I actually have a unique perspective on Shark Tank. So because we were on season one, we were 22 years old and we signed a hundred page contract that we didn't admittedly read at all. We just said, oh, we're going to be sure. on national TV. Let's re- let's sign this. And this is before Mark Cuban joined. I think he joined in season two. Yep. And when we were in the process of selling our company note hall, we ended up selling Chegg in 2011. So in the due diligence process, the Chegg lawyers found the contract and on page 82, there was a clause in season one contract that said that Sony, ABC, and Mark Burnett from Shark Tank have the ability to implement a 1% perpetual royalty on any company that appears on the show. And so obviously the acquiring company said, there's no way we can do that deal because you could argue it applies to the larger company. And so now we had the process to, to finish the acquisition deal. We had to get out of this 1% perpetual royalty. And so we ended up flying down to Los Angeles, meeting with the Mark Burnett folks and the ABC and the Sony folks, trying to get out of this 1% perpetual royalty under the notion that, hey, it's really hard for us to raise money or run a business if you have this 1% perpetual royalty. And it took weeks and weeks and a lot of money. Um, And we finally ended up buying... Buying out like a buyout clause to ABC, Mark Burnett, and Sony to get out of the one percent perpetual royalty. And I have to say, we are the only company in history to have paid the one percent perpetual royalty buyout to the Mark Burnett and Sony folks uh, from appearing on Shark Tank.
0: That's insane. And like i'm I'm like taken aback on a couple of fronts. One, kudos to you for getting out of it, although i I don't know what the price was. This was like, like, it
1: was a mid, it was a mid six figure sum to get out of that deal.
0: Jesus. Like, like that is such a, I guess I'm sure they still have something similar to that, that they want to get out of the, out of the people coming to the show. That is such a death stroke. Like it's, it's impossible. It'd be impossible to raise money, especially from any institutional VC with a 1% royalty paid out or like, or an exit like this. I'm just so curious if that's still the case. So if as I is, like wow
1: as I understand when uh, Mark Cuban joined on season 2 uh, one of his requirements was that they removed it and so I don't believe any other companies have had it since by appearing on the Shark Tank and that's why I think we're the only company that has actually paid out any money to the Shark Tank conglomerate for appearing on the show which was pretty <laughs> co- pretty costly at the end of the
0: day I was say, it's, it's costly and, and only comical because you've had success after that <laughs> You can sit and laugh about it now. What about the, and, and this is not even shark tank about note, how, what, what were the early learnings? You're 22. You're, you're, you're starting this thing. Obviously you go through the exit. I don't recall how old you were when you sold to Chegg, but I'm just curious, like the beginning and then the, like we're selling. And then that like post exit, like what were some of the lessons that you learned there and how long did it take you before you were like, yeah, I'm going to jump right back in and do something else. And I know that it was uh not necessarily, well, not at all related to the Chegg deal, but like kind of starts a pathway that I, I'm really interested in talking about, which is on this uh, short term rentals and, and then what, what ends up happening with Showplace. Like there's another spin on short term rentals. So I'm, I'm curious how the early first success um, shaped That's when you question. got back into it and the whole rest of it.
1: Yeah. So my business partner at Note Hall was a guy named Sean Conway, and we were in college together. And we realized this opportunity that there's 300 students in one of these lecture classes and everyone's taking the exact same notes, which seemed really inefficient. And so we said, what if we could put lecture notes and study guides online? It was pretty much that simple of an idea in 2008. And we hacked together some money. It was my life savings at the time, uh, $8,000. And he had some money and we put together a website and lo and behold, within two to three months, we started signing up about 10 to 12% of the student population. This is at the University of Arizona in 2007. Um, And we started scaling it from there. And this is an era, a period of time where we would hire note takers all around the country and they would create study guides and lecture notes from their classes, put the the notes online. And we had a 50, 50, 50% commission uh, split with the po- folks who took notes. So if they sold a study guide for five bucks, we'd keep $2.50 and they'd keep two fifty. dollars And at some point we got on the radar of the folks at Chegg, uh, this is maybe about 2010, we had about 500,000 students in the US. Uh, and we were about a seven figure uh, annual run rate business. And the folks at Chegg said, hey, we're doing a lot of digital services and we think notes are really interesting and compelling. Um, and so we were faced with a decision, which is, do we go out for the series a and do we, you know, raise at the time, five, $10 million series a, or do we take a for sure W, uh, with the folks at Chegg and as young guys, as you know, as we were 23, 24 years old, we got a term sheet from the folks over at floodgate and, uh, Mike Maples for the series a, and we said, you know what? we think we're going to take the win. Uh, we think we're going to take the W. It was a relatively, you know, good size outcome for young guys. And we felt that if we could get a win, you know, or, or, or hit, hit a solid double on our first at-bat at running a business, then that would set us up, you know, for a lifetime of entrepreneurship. And that's basic. That's exactly what we ended up doing. And so in the second business that we started called Pillow, I actually worked with the same business partner, Sean Conway, um, on that business as well.
0: That's amazing. So like, I, I'm thinking, I'm just trying to think of like, it's not that we don't have the ability to stay in this business and scale it up more. We just are like at a point where we've taken it as far as we want to take it. And maybe there's other ideas. And and like, I certainly agree with the idea of like having that check mark or the the notch in the belt. It's like, yeah, we sold to what would eventually become a public company. Like you have, you know, that's a big win, but it's also a big bet. Cause like, if you're looking at, the number of companies that fail and lack of acquisitions and, you know, just failed startups in general, like it's actually fairly rare and fairly rare even further to sell to like a notable acquirer for cash. That's a bold move. Like, I feel like that's a, that's a spot that a lot of founders would not necessarily know how to handle.
1: Totally. We spoke afterwards um, with Josh Koppelman from first round. And one of the things that he mentioned to us is he said, Hey, I really like funding entrepreneurs who've had a small win in their past oh, well, yeah <laughs> and, and who doesn't and and he said but but his reasoning was at the time was hey now you're willing to take you know a big swing at whatever's next like it's going to be massive and I think you know obviously a lot of successful entrepreneurs where it's their first business can take some money off the table I I tend to agree that like second time entrepreneurs um, who've had a small win are willing to take a lot more chances.
0: I 100% agree with you. I mean, as an entrepreneur myself, you know, the the first company I built, I sold to effectively Tribune Media, which at the time owned WGN and they've all been split up or whatever. But like, that was a deal that netted me zero dollars. It just sort of like made everything even. I think that's the best way to put it. And it was like, okay, like next time, different people, different things. And then the next deal was like, we you know, got to the millions of dollars mark. And I felt like I had gotten to a point where I was like, okay, Less about me and my finances, and more about me understanding the game and like understanding what you're building for and the optionality that you're trying to achieve. And like raising money is not just about growing headcount and, and increasing revenue, it's, it's also maybe even more about optionality as a founder and, and as a business operator. Like, do I want to tend to take this the venture route and go A, B, C, D, E, you know, so on and so forth? Or do I want to, you know, maybe set this up as strategic? And there's just a lot of stuff that I feel like I knew a lot better. And now with Songfinch. You know we're we're on a insane trajectory right now, and I, I think if I hadn't had the the shitty exit and then the less shitty exit, I don't think that I would be able to be so confident in the moves. And I don't think me and the founding team like would have that feeling of like this is the masterpiece. We're going for it every single time. You bet on yourself again and again, and you don't even think about it. Like a lot of that was is rooted in in the early success slash failure, however you want to look at at the exits.
1: Totally. Yeah. I think, I think you're just willing to put more on the line, which ultimately is going to make better businesses. Like that's the exciting part. And for me uh, it, and in my experience, a lot of people ask, Hey, you know, is it easier the second time or third time around? And my answer is always no. Like I actually think there's a lot of things that are harder. Uh, sure. You've seen a lot, you know, you, you've done a lot of the, the, the routines and, and things that are helpful but every single day is always something brand new, which is which is absolutely what I love doing and why I think this journey of entrepreneurship is so exciting.
0: I agree with you. I would even go further to say that for, for certain entrepreneurs, yourself clearly included, you know, you're on what third or fourth venture or whatever it is now. It's easier to set up shop for a new company because you kind of know what you know. And all the little stupid struggles you had the first time around, you know, even something as dumb as filling out your docs and just getting through that, like that stuff becomes easy. You know your first five or six hires are. You kind of know like how you're going to set up books and you know a lot of different stuff that you struggled. It's easier, I think, to start another company. It's much harder to take it to a new level. and and I would argue that all you're really doing is like take trying to take this one further than the last one. So like kind of in in essence, you're always doing something new. so it's not it's definitely not easier. And in fact, you might even be harder on yourself because you you kind of know what you know. And like you're, you're holding yourself to yet an even higher standard to have an even better outcome this time. And so it's like between the pressure and just like, you know, how pressure burst pipes, right? It's like the pressure on yourself, but also just like entering this new stratosphere. Like the more, the bigger the deal, the more the headcount, the more the problems, the, the, more, the more the stress, the, it just gets crazy. Um, so I, I, think it, I think you're 100% right that it, it gets, it does not get easier. It actually in a lot of ways gets harder.
1: And Scott, you know, I, th- I think what we fall victim to, or at least a lot of the folks who are on entrepreneurial journeys, second and third companies, is that that goalpost moves. You know, <laughs> yeah. what, what, what? You know, the the number that you had in your mind at eighteen, and then you know you get there, and then it's like, okay, well, what's the new goalpost? And it's it's this treadmill of, well, is there always a new goalpost to be had? Because that doesn't seem like a great existence either. And I think there's that existential question. Um, of like, we just love building companies, helping customers solve great problems. And it really, and, and I know it sounds cliche to say, but there there is a lot more than just, you know, building a company for making money purposes.
0: Oh, 100%, 100%. And like, I would go so far as to say the goalpost is like the one you get at the carnival. Like, it's not even just going front and back. It's moving side to side like the the motivation for what you're doing changes. This is not the right word for it, but like the legacy, it's not just your legacy, but you want like the company to have a mission that that matters. And there's just so many things that change over time, which is why I want to pivot into the conversation about pillow a little bit and then kind of move into show place here because you move from one space, which is obviously what you guys were experiencing. You know, you and your partner are sitting in a, in a you know, whatever hall at University of Arizona and you're going, this is stupid. Uh, here's a fix. And it fortunately for you turned out to be a successful company and, and became an exit. Now you leave. Were you guys looking for, for problems that were already familiar? Were you looking for, did you notice a, a weird gap? Was there something, was there an analogy that was running like in in my mind, like between company A and company B for me, the businesses had nothing to do with each other, but they were pretty much the same thing. Like the parallel of making a middle class for investors versus making a middle class for musicians was the same uh, general deal, and I, I was able to kind of see an, an opportunity there that in a space I don't know. How did this work for you? Because your guys are getting out of school, I assume you're studying business or management or something. Uh, you have this exit to check. You've got a general idea of how you're doing this. You're going to be lifelong entrepreneurs now, and you enter what short-term rental. Like, how how do you enter real estate at that point?
1: That's a great point. So, the the one theme that's common. Uh, between all three of the companies that I've done is really about, and this is my 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 mission and passion, just generally in life, is enabling entrepreneurship. And I think that the more entrepreneurship that exists in the United States, the better that we are equipped to solve the biggest problems that the world's facing. And so, when you look at the the note hall business, we were solving a problem, we were helping students, you know, make a few hundred extra bucks a year by selling their notes. Um, and then when we ended up selling a uh, note hall to Chegg and I worked there for about two years, I, uh, we took about a year off and we traveled to about 30 different countries. This is in 2013 Nice. and absolutely fell in love with the concept of Airbnb. We were traveling around, we were partying, you know, through Europe and we were hanging out in beaches um, and like just having an absolute blast for six months uh, to a year and discovered that, hey, there's this thing called Airbnb. And what it excited me uh, the most is that it's at this intersection of my two passions, one, which is real estate, and one, which is obviously technology. And Airbnb was this layer of making real estate more efficient. And we asked ourselves one simple question, which was, why are we not renting out our home on Airbnb back in San Francisco? And the answer that we came up with is that it's really hard to run an Airbnb. And so we set out to to start Pillow in 2013 um, to build software and as a full service property manager um, to help folks run an Airbnb business uh, more profitably. And we ended up, Scaling the pillow business to 800 homes in ten different markets, and we managed about 40,000 reservations over a five-year period. And we ended up raising a Series A from Mayfield in 2016. That was about 12 million dollars. And then in 2018, that business was acquired by Expedia.
0: Amazing. I'm going to guess the uh, there was there was no 1% royalties, so you don't have to worry about that. No no Shark Tank royalties. And I'm imagining that that exit uh, panned out even better than the Jag one.
1: Exactly. That, that's that goalpost moving again. So you got the first business right. and then the second one, exactly. And so from there, we were just on, on fire emotionally and saying, hey, you know, if we can create something that helps customers and builds this bu- business, like there's there's unlike any other entrepreneurial journey to see these businesses full cycle. And then obviously- with the Expedia acquisition to give us more distribution um, into the VRBO space was just really a dream come true.
0: Well, how could it not? I don't think we get credit for it as entrepreneurs, but there's there's definitely a sentimental weirdo kind of thing about doing this where you set your own goals that are even, they're, they're not monetary. I mean, yeah, sometimes it is, but generally speaking, like I actually don't think I work for money. I think I work for like proving myself wrong again and again and again, or proving somebody else wrong or whatever the case may be. And the idea that you were able to stare down a Series A, pass on it, and sell to Chegg, with the like, yeah, I'm sure the cocky, brash young person's like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll be back. We're gonna do it again. It's gonna be bigger. But like the reality of it being that you actually did once again get into a position to raise a Series A or, or potentially exit, and instead you do actually opt to raise the Series A and 16 million or whatever you said, like a fairly significant Series A, and then to See that full cycle and and you know and sell to a, another massive company, um, shows that you absolutely made the right decision the first time and you learned a shit ton from it, and you were able to take the same principles that you had from the first company and use it for the next one, and grow from there, which then leads us to the the next next company, right? Unless was there anything between? I don't think there could possibly have been. There's not enough time. Was there any other companies between uh, Pillow and Showplace? Or are you batting a perfect game right now?
1: No, no, nothing in between. So what happened with Showplace was this, is that once the pandemic hit in 2020, I started to realize that there was going to be this incredible growth in the short-term rental Airbnb space. Like I knew everything was closed down, obviously, um, but there was going to be a massive rebound. And so in 2020, when we started Showplace, what we realized was that all of the new Airbnb investors coming into the market had very little time and very little knowledge about how to set up their listings and their businesses for success. And that's pretty much the only experience that I had had the prior eight years, which was how do we scale up and set up these Airbnb businesses for success? So at Showplace, essentially we've created... A wholesale marketplace for the entire Airbnb industry where we pool together all of the demand for these operators who are buying the furniture, the sheets and towels, the linens, everything that they're buying to operate their business uh, into one place. And if you have if you're an active Airbnb host, you get to go to Showplace and we will help you set up your listing for success with professional design services, product procurement. We have over 50 brand partners um, that give us great deals because they want to sell into Airbnb operators. Um, And then we even have services to help you with installation and assembly once you're setting it up. So it's identifying this very painful process, which often leads to investors having to take off two to three weeks from work, going and staying in their empty homes and setting it up. There's no solution in the marketplace. And that is something that we had solved with the pillow business and so now we're trying to democratize it with the show place business
0: is this another justin and sean production
1: no 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 so sean and i worked together almost over 12 years and uh it was very much time for me to go from the co-pilot seat uh into the pilot seat at this point
0: i was gonna say every every good marriage has its uh it's been getting it well ju- and not, just not, for... to say, not, not to say a divorce i just meant it was you know no, no. at some point everyone's gotta go on their own and see what they can, what they can do differently.
1: Of course. No, Sean's actually an investor and advisor currently at Showplace.
0: Amazing. Uh, you know, it's, it's super interesting to me. Like I, I was telling my producer, Sam, prior to hopping on with you, uh, other than me cursing at Riverside, that was the other thing I was telling Sam. Um, but, but prior to hopping on with you, I was telling like my business partner, Mike Rothman from the company, Technori, the, the actual company, not the podcast, you know, his whole career has been this way and he's, he's down to the two now of a, his second billion dollar company. And it's it started off like contractor kind of really understood the ins and outs of like the contractor's dilemma. And then it became really, really understanding the in and outs of like the the, the lesser, the person who's u- utilizing the space's is dilemma. You know, the person who's going to have to meet with the contractor to fix the stuff on site. And then it, the third iteration of this business became like, let me handle the dilemma of the owner. And if you pull all the stuff back, All three businesses are the exact same. They solve the same problem with the same set of things with just a little bit of nuance. And obviously over a 30 or 40 year period, of course, there's different changes in technology and how businesses operate and customer behavior, et cetera. But like the general premise is the same. He just kept kind of figuring out like, all right, well, I solved it for this person. and But there's three people on this market. So like this one, then this one, then this one. And when I was reading your bio, I was thinking about this. I was like, obviously, uh, Note Hall, Aside, but I feel like that's just kind of getting your your feet wet in business. The future, to me, like I, I think the real estate ownership is a unique business. Uh, I'm a fan of it. built to rent, built to develop. I've been involved in that commercial real estate and so forth. Um, I think prop tech is super interesting. But the one area that I do think you're going to start to see a constant flow of, even more per, uh, pervasive than today, is this like Airbnb uh, concept. This this idea of like shared ownership across everything and monetizing more or less anything that, that you possibly could own. Do you see this as like, the show place could be a nice business that grows and it's, it's, it's as big or bigger than Pillow? Or is this sort of the first of many different things that you think you can do within this space? Because I feel like this space, again, I don't know the space as well as you do clearly, but I feel like the space is going to evolve in ways that regular people, are not paying attention, like are have no idea how big the space can actually be. Like, I think this is like the Amazon of living in a lot of ways.
1: Well, we're very intentional about building a massive business. And I think that we are just starting today on the first step of that journey with what Showplace does. But I think that we can grow into a massive business that services every step of the life cycle for short-term rental investor, boutique hotel investor, things like that. Now, I generally think where we are in the life cycle of short-term rentals is quite early still in, yes. in, a, lar- in a larger like 30-year trend. Um, so I think that consumers, you know, tra- guests who are traveling are fundamentally changing their behavior and their approach. And they no longer want to stay in large hotels and they want to stay in short-term rentals. And the nature of folks wanting to stay in short-term rentals is that it democratizes all of the power that was once held by these hotels back into the hands of individual investors. And so I think that demand curve uh, continues like over a 20 to 30 year horizon. And so the way we're positioning Showplace in a long-term vision is a modern infrastructure for short-term rental investors. So you'll be able to go to Showplace, when you're first starting your listing, and you need help with design and procurement and installation, and then on a monthly basis for all of the services or products that you need to restock your home, and then in the future being able to grow your portfolio, um, help you know using Showplace as well. And so I think I think in many ways the power of a startup is obviously the just the sheer focus in one particular vertical, but then thinking about how we grow over the next 10 to 20 years, um, as the industry grows is something that I think is really exciting
0: to nerd out. Just a to touch with you on this. I completely agree with you on this 30, 30 year window. I think you've seen this before in other businesses. Amazon is honestly not a bad example of this. Like first becomes the opportunity, the Airbnb, then there becomes sort of the like, Oh, this is cool. Like it's, it's neat. I can stay at somebody's house effectively. Um, you know, instead of whatever I was doing before, or hotels or whatever, then you start to see like the, the business itself, Airbnb, and like all the little businesses that, not little, but you get what I'm saying, like the pillows that pop up in the market. And it sort of changes consumer behavior to where now they're kind of like, oh, you're gouging me with prices. Like there's all these stupid things that are happening. I'm going to go back to the hotels. And then all of the businesses on the Airbnb side like wise up and learn new ways to do it, and new tech and more efficiencies. And then all of a sudden the people flock back. And you're like literally watching this like little boxing match between the customer and the provider and the owner, and just like the tools of being able to acquire properties and banks having loans and things that are set up specifically for them. Like all this shit is not done yet. Like to your point of being like in the early innings, there's so many of these little pieces that like are not even tailor-made. And and if they are, it's a rarity for the the like professional short-term rental investor or the professional short-term rental operator or even the professional short-term rental user. Like the, the tools are just not there yet. And I think the runway for you, the green field for this business, it really is like 20 years. You could build this thing into a billion dollar business pretty easily if you you know, easy relative term. There is plenty of room to do so, I guess is the point.
1: Yeah, what I think is really exciting about the short-term trends is that as the real estate cap rates on long-term rentals, keep getting compressed. It's harder to make a return on long-term rentals. We're seeing a lot of big Wall Street money coming into the space and saying, hey, how do we do two to 300 new Airbnb homes this year? And the returns on short-term rentals are sometimes double what you're seeing in long-term rentals. So there's gonna be a flight in my opinion and continue to flight towards higher returns on investment by I'd say more corporate, more professional investors getting into short-term rentals. And I think it sets up our business at Showplace really, really well to become that modern infrastructure for investors who don't wanna have to be hands-on. And so I think in other words, the larger trend is going from the mom and pop Airbnb host to professionalized corporate style investors who are operating it as a business. And I think at the end of the day, it is better for the consumer and the guest because they have more choice with more inventory at ultimately a higher quality of experience when someone's taking it as a professional level.
0: I totally agree. And, you know, I just got a podcast uh, yesterday I did with the founder of deputy.com, which is sort of the, the king of shift work app. And we were having this debate about how gig economy, it's convenient for customer, but in the end, we definitely view it as a kind of a net zero or a net loss for the actual like worker because they don't have a lot of things to grow. There, is a bunch of opportunities, and I actually think like the kind of parallel here is that in the this is like the gig economy for for living, and you know, in a way, there are certain markets and pockets where I think it's fine for mom and pop. Like the volume is not super high. Like they genuinely can make, you know, a couple bucks on their mortgage. They can, you know, have an add-on room or basement floor that's got a back door that people can use. Like, they can make a little bit of side buck, but with like high turnover, safety, security, like all this stuff, we're just entering into a world where like it's moving too fast to have a mom and pop be like, yeah, I operate like two of these and it just constant turnover. I just, I think there's a huge opportunity for businesses, and they're obviously going to take full advantage of that. And no business is going to operate with a mom and pop. You know, running it like a motel on the Ozarks, like that's not happening. They're mm-hmm. gonna use guys like you. And you know, I think the idea that these big big groups, Blackstone, BlackRock, you know, they're they're getting in this space, which just tells you that they believe that there's a 10, 20-year horizon of total uh, profitability.
1: Well, I think what's interesting in the assessment that they're making is that at the end of the day, let's say you have a hundred million dollars to deploy into short-term rentals and you go and buy a couple hundred homes to make short term rentals around the country at the end of the day it's still real estate underneath right it's still underpinning right. the risk so, so, you know so what is the real risk right because oh let's start and let's try airbnb or let's try a short term rental business and if it doesn't work you you know you still have the appreciation the tax benefits uh, of of owning real estate and you could always You know, change it back to a long-term rental if needed, uh, or if you know if there is a big change in the market. And so, I think it's sort of like this asymmetric risk reward that a lot of these Wall Street uh, folks are thinking about, which is let's try Airbnb for a year, let's see if we can get double the rate of return, and if it doesn't work, then at least we'll get you know a five or six percent return if we just go long-term rental. So, so I I think there's a lot of that happening uh, right now, which is to me really exciting. Um, Airbnb came out at the end of last year and they said, we need to add 1 million new listings every single year just to keep up with the pace of guest demand. And so I think that number continues to accelerate. I think for the short-term rental industry, it's a, it's a net positive. Um, and I just think we generally see more and more folks entering into the short-term rental space and obviously positioning Showplace to become that modern infrastructure For investors or folks looking to start an airbnb business
0: i could not agree more i mean the reality is i i don't think anyone under the age of like 32 like will be considering like and and everyone from there on out will be not considering airbnb first and if you have a family and you have two kids whatever like immediately it's already a better a more appealing choice so yeah i just think that that the transient nature of our of our age group and so forth is is heading in that direction so no question. I think the irony here is that I started my career in commercial real estate and ultimately property management. And in like 2009, 10, got the hell out of there. I was like, I don't want anything to do with this. It's dead. Uh, <laughs> only to find it come back around again. And I'm like trying to sell my companies. So I can get back into it. Amazing. Um, you
1: know, one, one of the things that we see is that when someone's considering starting uh, an Airbnb business, there is very little forethought that goes into what does my home need to look like to perform well as a business? What is the furniture, the quality? Uh, What we've seen is that there's over 200 different items needed when setting up a new listing, which is often very overwhelming for a new investor, um, both geographically and just from a a shopping perspective. And so the clients that we generally work with at Showplace, their performance on their short-term rentals is on average thirty percent better than the competition in their market, and the reason is is that when you have a professionally designed home with the right products, the right experience that's memorable, you generally get better reviews, and those better reviews lead you to be able to high to increase your nightly rates. And so right. we kind of we think about their business in a holistic perspective, you know, helping them get set up.
0: It's fantastic. I, I have a handful of friends who started this off, I would say, which you would call mom and pop. They're still mom and pop. uh, Although one of them now is, you know, into like the 300 unit level, which I would say it's not mom and pop anymore. I can't wait to send them the show because I I think that this is something that if you're mom and pop, it's one thing. If you're corporate, obviously, you know where to go and they know to talk to you. But I think there's this like possibility for for groups that want to do this professionally and turn turn it into a real business uh, and scale it up. And, And this is a no brainer to get started on that. So I can't wait to send this to some of my buddies. This has been a pleasure. Justin, talking to you, your your career journey is amazing. You are currently throwing a perfect game. So I hope I didn't jinx it. And I'm curious to see if there's going to be a fourth company and a fifth company. And can you just keep this one? You have to race up to a series B and sell, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So just keep, uh, then keep then moving. Gotta...
1: Yeah. Keep moving then that you... goalpost for me.
0: Dude, then then you get to then the fourth company, then it's a series C. And, you know, it's up to you at that point. Then then I think we start talking IPOs. And I don't know. you do that <laughs> on this one or, or number five? I'll leave it to you.
1: Thank you very much, man. It's great, great chatting with you.
0: Awesome. Likewise. Thank you so much. Uh, people can go to showplace
1: showplacewholesale.com.
0: That's right. Showplacewholesale.com. Check it out, Justin. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. If you're interested in self-directed investing from startups to crypto and public markets, my Substack is a great way to learn how professional investors screen, review, and pull the trigger on deals. Join the largest community of micro investors and startup founders on Substack by going to Katoon.com.